0: Welcome to Our Weird World, I'm your host, John Henson, and this week, uh, this is the second uh, edition of our ghost stories. Uh, The first part was back on episode 83, Uh, I think that would have been probably the second year that we were doing this, so uh yeah just uh three ghost stories this week uh we are looking at the tales of alexander campbell desmond arthur and our first story will be of bill Skeeto. skito was born on june 8th 1818 in madrid spain which i know that's not what you were expecting with a name like bill skito but he immigrated to rural dale county alabama with his father when he was a child so now it sounds about right uh skito grew up to become a preacher got married had eight kids which also sounds like a very alabama thing to do Uh, But when the Civil War broke out, Skeeto joined the Confederate Army and served until 1864 when he was forced to return home to take care of his ailing wife. And I mean, like at this point, he's, you know, mid 40s, so still kicking it pretty well. Uh, But when he returned home, he found that Dale County, Alabama had basically become like a lawless refuge for Confederate deserters and Union sympathizers who frequently went into the town of Newton to terrorize the residents there. Eventually, though, the residents of Newton got fed up and formed a home guard to defend the town, electing town lawyer Joseph Breer, Breer? Breer. Probably like Breer, like Breer Rabbit. That sounds about right. Um, as the leader, uh, Breer immediately resolved to start hunting down and executing all deserters. Well, When Br'er got word that Skeeto had actually helped a man named John Ward, who was a leader of a local group of deserters and union sympathizers uh, to safety after Ward had ambushed a Confederate ammunition transport and killed an officer, Br'er went after Skeeto. So basically what happened was John Ward, this guy, uh, he is leading this group of deserters or union sympathizers because... God forbid anyone in the South don't join the war effort and keep slaves, I guess, whatever. Um, states rights to keep slaves and I don't know why I'm getting on that high horse, but, um, you know, ward as you know, because they got to survive, like they can't be seen out in public, but they still need to get food or supplies or whatever. So ward ambushes a Confederate ammunition transport and kills an officer. So when this home guard leader, Joseph Brayer finds out about this, he finds out that Skeeto actually helped this, uh, you know, rebel group, which is odd to say like a rebel, uh, you know, rebel rebelling against the rebels. But this, you know, this group, he, he got them to safety. Brayer decided like, I'm not going to go after this rebel group. I'm going to go after this guy that this Confederate veteran who helped them. Um, even more like there wasn't even a ton of evidence. There was actually no evidence that Skeeto had actually helped him. It was Brayer just kind of got word that this is what had happened. And even though there was no evidence, Skeeto was charged with treason, but instead of moving forward with a traditional trial, like he was, uh, had right to do, of course, I don't know, maybe the Confederate States didn't have this law. Um, Brayer just decided that he was going to go and execute Skeeto once he found him, because, again, like Dale County is just this lawless area, uh, you know, in, you know, kind of, I guess, the southern part of Alabama, kind of close to Georgia, uh, the southeastern part uh, of. So, like. You know, like not a lot of fighting probably going on here. Like everything's probably concentrated in the larger cities, uh, you know, around Montgomery, Birmingham, you know, and obviously farther east in, into Georgia, South Carolina, stuff like that. But, um, you know, not a lot going on out here. So, yeah, I mean, why even bother to follow the law when no one's really going to check in on him on this anyway? So on December 3rd, 1864, Skeeto was finally con- uh, confronted by Brayers men as he crossed a bridge over the Choctawatchie river, North of Newton. Uh, Skeeto was then dragged into the woods, beaten, and then forced to crawl through the sand, which I, I don't, I don't know what the point of that was. Um, he was then dragged to a nearby carriage while a rope was placed over a large Oak limb. Now, While all of this is going on, one of Skeeto's friends saw what was happening and rushed into town to find help. Brayer, knowing that Skeeto was probably likely innocent, but was really trying to really just prove a point that like none of this is going to be tolerated, uh, asked Skeeto if he had any last words. And so Skeeto, being a pastor, he asked if he could just pray. And so since this is Alabama, Brayer's like, all right, guess I can't deny you your chance to talk to God because we all got to do that. All right. That's pretty, pretty important. Uh, however, Br'er was kind of uh, expecting Skeeto to kind of pray for himself and ask for protection and all that kind of stuff. But then Skeeto actually started to pray for Br'er and his men, like kind of like, dear God, let this dude figure out how silly he's being and, just you know, kind of change his mind because he's being a little dingling right now, and he doesn't need to hang me, God. He needs to be just kind of protecting the town from other stuff, not for me because I didn't do nothing. So tell tell Brer he's being a little stupid, stupid head, and let me down. Thank you, Amen. So when Brer <laughs> I don't know what he actually said, but it's probably something along those lines. Because when Br'er heard this, he was just full of rage, just completely in rage, uh, v- lost his mind. And he commanded the horse attached to the carriage to sprint off. And, you know, obviously the carriage, there's a rope tied to the carriage. The rope is also tied to Skeeto, who's hanging from this limb. And when, in, in a couple of seconds, Skeeto was snatched up and just left dangling from the tree. However, there was kind of a problem there because in their haste to quickly kill this guy, Brayer's men forgot to kind of take into account Skeeto's uh, larger size when selecting a limb from a tree from which to hang him. And Skeeto was actually big enough that the limb that he was attached to just kind of sagged down, which ultimately let him stand on his own two feet and take pressure off of the noose. And so he's just kind of standing there. Uh, You know, he's getting pulled from the horse that's running away on the carriage, but like, there's no pressure on his neck. It's probably more concentrated elsewhere, but like, he's like, it, it probably still hurts, but he's not like getting killed from this. So Brer's men, decided to dig a hole around Skeeto's feet as fast as they could so that they could ultimately still hang him, which I don't know, like do something else, right? Like he's not, you only have shovels. That's going to take a while, right? Because you have to dig a hole deep enough that uh, dig a hole, not just deep enough, but like wide enough so that his feet, like he can't just like prop, prop his feet up on the side of the hole. Right? So just shoot him or stab him or something. Just like if you're going to kill him, like you just got to do something different at this point. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) it it eventually did help. Like they eventually did hang him because it's the 1860s and there's no reliable transportation. People got to walk and run everywhere unless you have a horse. Um, So Skeeto did eventually die. And in the years following Skeeto's death, we're finally getting to the ghost story now. Uh, strange things started happening around Newton, Alabama for starters, everyone who was involved in Skeeto's death, uh, died in very odd ways, including Brer, who was ironically killed by a falling limb off of an Oak tree. So, you know, he, he and his men had gone out into the woods, tried to find a strong tree to hang Skeeto from, and then Brer is ultimately killed by a tree, Uh, Even more, the hole that was dug to help uh, hang Skeeto was never refilled. Uh, Despite numerous attempts to fill the hole with dirt or trash or other fillers, the hole always allegedly returned to its original dimensions. People who camped out in the area uh, claimed that they would even pitch a tent on top of the hole only to wake up the next morning to find the area completely clean. Some residents, however, insist that it was really just Skeeto's uh, friends and later sort of sympathizers and supporters who would always come and keep the hole clean and visible for several years after his death. However, uh, finally, in 1979, a new bridge over the Choctawchee River was built over Skeeto's hole. And in 1990, the river flooded, forcing the state to construct riprap along the banks, you know, all of the like giant granite gravel rocks that you see kind of along the edge of bridges and stuff. Sometimes, um, Skeeto's hole, which sounds funny, uh, was subsequently covered with thousands of pounds of rock and was never seen again. Uh, but in 2006, members of Skeeto's family erected a small monument near the original hole that tells the story. So I don't know, maybe it was, uh, Skeeto's ghost who was coming in and was like, no, don't mess with my hole. I don't know. Uh, just a silly little story there. Uh, Our next story here is Alexander Campbell, who was born in Ireland sometime in 1833 and eventually immigrated to the United States. Uh, He worked several jobs in Pennsylvania, including owning a hotel. He distributed liquor. He was a miner. Uh, Many people believed that Campbell was a member of the Molly Maguires, which was this secret society among Irish-born coal miners who participated in labor movements, resisted war drafts, Uh, probably just kind of stayed angry and drunk all the time because they're Irish and they're coal miners. Uh, The group obviously did not have the best reputation in Pennsylvania, and they were actually considered a terrorist group. So that should tell you a lot about, you know, this guy. In 1877, Campbell and three other men, Edward Kelly, Michael Doyle, and John Donahue were convicted of murdering John P. Jones and Morgan Powell. Campbell, however, only confessed to being an accessory and claimed that he had not actually participated in the murder. Uh, Apparently, though, that did not matter to the court, who openly opposed anyone who was associated with the Molly Maguires and took only really only considered evidence from a lone detective of the Pinkerton agency to sentence Campbell and the other three men to death. So basically the court's already pretty biased against the Molly Maguires. They had a reputation. Like I said, they were considered a terrorist group. There wasn't a ton of evidence against these guys in the, in the two people that they murdered, except for this one detective from the Pinkerton agency, which Pinkerton, very famous detective agency. They were involved uh, with uh, H.H. Holmes's uh, murder case I think they had some sort of involvement with Abraham Lincoln at some point, but very well known, very, you know, uh, respected detective agency. They had some loose, loose evidence, nothing really concrete or direct. And the court thought that that was good enough. We're going to get some of these Molly Maguires off the street. And they sentenced um, all four men to death. So for the next few days, while they awaited execution, Campbell was confined to his cell where he was basically forced to listen to the gallows being built, which has got to be a weird experience, right? Like you're sentenced to death and then you basically are forced to listen and watch your, uh, you know, death instrument being built right in front of you. Well, on the morning of his execution, the courtyard was crowded with townspeople who had come to watch the hangings because, That's just what you did back in the day. There wasn't obviously no TV or anything. It's like you maybe read the newspaper if you know how to read or you go down to the local jail to watch criminals get hanged. And like we need to have we need to bring that back. Right. Like let's like for some of the most heinous murderers and criminals out there, like some of these mass shooters, that would be some great catharsis for people. Like give them the death penalty and then like pay per view their execution. Oh God, what if that that you want to eliminate the national debt? Let's charge a hundred bucks pay per view or something to view someone's execution, and let's let's just do it, man. We've got enough mass shooters in this country. We can line them all up and let's go. Right, uh, <laughs> just. I, I mean, and it's it's one execution per pay per view. We can uh, we can make it a whole big production, right? Let's let's have let's walk them in with some entrance music like they're a WWE wrestler. Let's let them say some words. You know, let's see what kind of approach they take. Maybe they'll be really. Um, really remorseful and try to maybe sway public opinion on them in the end. Or maybe they'll be like real heels and like really be like, yeah, Hitler was right about everything and those kids deserve to die. And so they really get the crowd riled up and really hate them. You know, like it would be fun. It would be a fun experience. Now, is that super dystopian and probably lead to some other crazy things happening in our society? Absolutely. And that's probably why we don't do it. But... Man, that would be cool. It would be really cool and interesting. And I really think, uh, you know, talk about like legalizing weed to get some extra tax revenue. Pay-per-view some death row executions. Let's let's get weird up in here with that, man. I don't know, man. When I'm president, <laughs> we're pay-per-viewing death row executions. Uh, that's... That's the great idea and a terrible idea at the same time. Anyway, back to this ghost story. Uh, he, Alexander Campbell, he's sitting in a cell where he's forced to listen to the gallows being built. And on the morning of the execution, this courtyard becomes crowded with people to come watch the hangings. Um, while Kelly, Doyle, and Donahue, the other three people involved in this double murder, while they calmly marched to their deaths, Campbell... Was adamantly professing his innocence, like he is still, you know, claiming that he had nothing to do with this, that he's being framed, that you know, systems rigged, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and when the guards refused to listen, Campbell pressed his hand to the dirt and then made a handprint against the cell wall. And then eventually, as the guards dragged him from his cell, Campbell claimed that his handprint would remain there forever as a sign of his innocence, and then he was hanged a short time later. Well, guess what? You can see where this is going. Just as Campbell predicted, that handprint remained. Uh, Despite numerous attempts to wash it, paint over it, and even just replace the whole wall, allegedly this handprint stayed there. Uh, some forensic experts have claimed that the wall was never actually painted over. And some people argue over whether it was Campbell's right or left hand that he used to make the original mark. Still the Carbon County jail where Campbell was executed was placed on the national register of historic places. The handprint is apparently still there today. You can go see it. Um, but also, uh, a lot of people now think that it wasn't even Campbell's hand. It was a, it belonged to a guy named Jim Thorpe. Who knows? But the prevailing story is that you know this murdered man left his little ghost handprint, and it is still seen today. Our final story here is of Desmond Arthur, who was a pilot in the Royal Flying Corps during World War I. Um, since airplanes were still relatively new during World War I, there were a ton of crashes as countries tried to teach people how to operate these new vehicles, especially for combat in a war. And on May 27th, 1913, Arthur was making his descent at 2,500 feet during a training flight over Montrose, Scotland, when the right wing of his BE-2 biplane snapped off, which was really just a thing that happened a lot to early airplane models back then, right? Like, not, like, the, the architecture... Still getting figured out, right? And so you could just be flying and then maybe you hit some turbulence or something and your wing just snaps off. Uh, not not as common today, obviously. Um, the plane slammed the ground and Arthur was hurled out of the cockpit, killing him instantly. Uh, his body was recovered over 100 yards from the wreckage. And Despite a report issued by the Accidents and Investigation Committee of the Royal Aero Club, which found that the cause of the crash came from a faulty repair to a broken spar on the wing, another investigation by a government committee three years later listed pilot error as the official cause of the crash. Well, shortly after that government report was issued in August of 1916, Major Cyril Foggin saw what looked like a ghost walk into the officer's mess hall at Broomfield Farm where Arthur's squadron had been relocated. However, out of fear of losing his post for being insane, he chose not to report it. But over the next few years, other officers and pilots reported seeing the same sort of apparition enter the mess hall of the old number two flying squadron. So many soldiers actually ended up seeing this spirit, this same sort of ghostly figure walk into the mess hall that it came to be known as the Irish apparition and the Montrose ghost. Several soldiers were so spooked by this that they requested transfer or even just deserted their posts entirely. Uh, No one actually attributed the ghost to being Desmond Arthur, until C.G. Gray, Arthur's close friend and editor for the British magazine, The Aeroplane, made this connection. Uh, by the end of 1916, the British government had actually even issued a revision of their report and concluded the crash was due to faulty repairs. So, basically, so many people are seeing this ghost. And then one of Desmond Arthur's old friends is like, I don't even know what accent he had, I'm not even going to do it. But basically, he was just like, hey, this initial report said it was the plane's fault. And then the government said it was Arthur's fault. This is probably just Arthur's ghost hanging out here, trying to get someone to change this report. And so many people were like, yeah, that seems totally plausible that I make a ton of sense here. And they pressured the government to literally changing the report because so many people thought they were seeing this pilot's ghost. Um, after one more sighting in 1917, uh, Desmond Arthur's ghost was not seen again until 1940. Uh, this time it began when a pilot was searching for a German Heinkel bomber during World War II when he became distracted by a biplane flying nearby, which was odd because biplanes weren't really a thing anymore. It was more like jets and and prop planes and all that. Um Two years later, in 1942, after another pilot was killed thanks to faulty repairs, reports of a ghost wearing a flying suit and goggles around the airfield began popping up. Uh, It's at the same, you know, Montrose Airfield, Farmhouse Airfield. Dozens of other soldiers at Montrose reported seeing a man in a white flight suit and a hat up until the base closed in the 1950s. In 1963, Sir Peter Maysfield was flying near Montrose when he saw a BE-2 biplane crashing in the distance, just like the one that Desmond Arthur uh, flew. However, when Maysfield landed, there was no evidence of a crash to be found anywhere. So maybe Desmond Arthur's ghost just out there flying planes and crashing into the Scottish countryside. All right. Second part of our ghost stories in the books. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean like not necessarily, I mean the first two stories were more around like, Strange happenings after someone says, but like, you know, it's caused by their ghost, right? Uh, other than that, though, let's see what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one Bill Skeeto's dirty, dirty hole. <laughs> Whatever. Um, just the dumbest execution. I, one of the dumbest executions I've ever heard of, like, just shoot the guy like, okay, fine. You just, you you can't hang him. So now you're going to like quickly dig a hole big enough that he can't prop himself up on the sides so that he could then eventually hang. Like, I don't know. just real stupid. Uh, Number two, Alexander Campbell, part of the quote unquote terrorist group, Molly Maguire's professed his innocence as part of a double murder, smacked his dirty hand on the wall of the Carbon County Jail, and you can allegedly still see that handprint today, even though some people think it wasn't even his handprint. Uh, Number three, Desmond Arthur crashed his plane, got real mad when the government said it was his fault, and so now he just keeps reappearing at these old, uh, you know, former uh, Air Force bases And uh, people continue to see his ghost crashing his own plane because, I don't know, maybe he was just a bad pilot. Next week on Our Weird World, our spooky theme continues with part four of some stories about some monsters. Uh, we are going to look at the stories of the Loveland Frog and then uh, monsters in Utah, Arizona, Illinois, and Arkansas. So traveling all around the country to see some monsters that are definitely real, you guys, and definitely not just other things that can be logically explained. I'm sorry. I keep ruining. I can't suspend disbelief enough. Uh, but maybe you can and just you get past my Uh, cynicism or whatever. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not a good host for stories like these. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you all for continuing to listen. Keep telling all your friends and keep it weird. There's something about a truck in a farmer's field. A no trespass sign and time to kill. Nobody's gonna get hurt, so what's the big deal? There's something about a truck in a farmer's field. There's something about a beer sitting on ice after a long hard day makes it taste just right. On that drop tailgate on a summer night, there's something about a beer sitting on ice. Yeah, there's something about a girl in a red sundress with an ice-cold beer pressed against her lips. In that farmer's field will make a boy a man. There's something about a girl in a red sundress. There's something about a kiss that's gonna lead to more on that drop tailgate back behind the corn. The most natural thing you've ever felt before. There's something about a kiss that's gonna lead to more. And there's something about a truck in a field and a girl in a red sundress with an ice cold beer to her lips begging for another kiss. And there's something about you and me and the birds and the bees and Lord have mercy, it's a beautiful thing. Ain't nothing about it, look, there's something about a truck. Something about a creek around 2 a.m., After a few of those beers, you want to dive on in. You don't need no clothes, so just hang them on a limb. There's something about a creek around 2 a.m.